Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. You're listening to www.blackhistoryuniversity.com on iTunes, and we have a fabulous guest, our friend, Mr. Speech from Arrested Development. He is on the line. What's up, y'all? How y'all doing? We are doing excellent, and I hope your holidays were very festive. Yeah, it was great. It was great. We um, just got back from a European tour uh, a couple days before Thanksgiving and then celebrated the whole holidays with family and friends, and so it was really cool, very cool. Happy to be home. Okay. I got you. Okay. All right. All right, so one of your songs, one of your your hits from back in the day, referred to the N-word. Um, of course, yeah, people every day. Um, I used to live in Milwaukee, which is where I was born and raised. And, you know, I would rock my um, Afrocentric gear, maybe a daishiki, dreads. And in that time period, that wasn't very popular. So I would have brothers that would come up to me. Maybe I'm hanging out with my girl and at the park. And brothers would come up and start ridiculing what I'm wearing. Time in particular, it still happens today. The whole thought of representing and being proud of Africa was a diss. Africa was known as, you know, poverty-stricken, poor, starvation, jungles, animals. It wasn't even thought of as civilized and, and big cities or or anything progressive. So black people, brothers and sisters, but especially brothers would come up and start joning and start sort of looking at my clothing as a, as a reason to diss. And so that record was talking about a, a conflict between parts of the community that I refer to as the N-word, which to me means oppressed, but wallowing in oppression, and in the other part of our community, which I referred to as an African, which is also oppressed, but striving to overcome their oppression. So there's this ignorance, and then there's this consciousness, and there's this, this struggle between them two, and that song is uh, about that. Our lyrics go, I was resting at the park minding my own, business as I kick up the treble tone, on my radio tape player box, right, just loud enough so folks can hear his hype, see? Out of nowhere comes this woman I'm dating. Investigation, maybe she was demonstrating, but nevertheless, I was pleased. My day was going great and my soul was at ease until a group of brothers started bugging out, drinking the 40-ounce, going the nigger route, disrespecting my black queen, holding their crotches and being obscene. At first, I ignored them because, see, I know they tight. They got drunk, they got guns, and yes, they want to fight. And they see a young couple having the time that's good 
and that abusers want to test a brother's manhood. So they came to test speech because of my hairdo and my long, bright colors that I wear, boo. I was a target because I'm a fashion misfit, and the outfit that I'm wearing, brother's dissonant. Well, I stay calm and pray the niggas leave me be, but they squeeze in parts of my date's anatomy. Why, Lord, do brothers have to drill me? Because if I start to hit this man, they'll have to kill me because I'm everyday people. So that's, that's like wow. the first verse of that song. When I look at how African, what I consider the African and what I consider the N-word, I look at it as growing closer in some ways um, over the 27 years since I wrote that song. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I still see what I consider to be an N-factory that mm-hmm. really started 400 years ago. I consider the N-factory as still playing a large role and how we perceive ourselves as African or black people and how the world, the entire world sees black people. And that in factory is not only started by extreme racist evil men, but it is continued, unfortunately, in this day and age by evil men of this day, all races, and including black Uh people. So it's even more dangerous and using one of the most powerful mediums that black people have ever had, and that's hip-hop music. Um, We have that incredible medium at our disposal right now, and we have had it for the last 40 years. And that that medium is being hijacked and used by the Mm. N-Factory. So uh, I'm using I'm not using the the full word you know N I G G A I'm just using N but y'all so know what I mean. So you can use whatever yeah. you're comfortable with. Okay, cool. Now I did some research for uh, about you several years ago when you first came on the show. You come from a family who has been conscious for generations. For generations, I've had the blessing of my father and my mother both being activists during the civil rights era, my father starting his own black businesses in an extremely racist environment of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a primarily German um, town, or at least the descendants come from Germany, and very racist, very closed-minded. But my father found ways and had the, the guts and the drive to strive to start black businesses and employ black people. So he started gas stations. He started catering companies, nightclubs, um, pool halls. He started um, a newspaper. And so my mother, being married to him, um, was an amazing and still is amazing woman where she actually took advice from him and started to create her own business as well, employing more black people. But more important than just employing them, also providing information because just like our history in other cities and other places in the United States other than Milwaukee, black people couldn't get our stories out in the news. They couldn't get our stories out because the mainstream white newspapers refused to cover a death in the black community or refused to cover 
issues that were concerning the black community. So my mother took it upon herself to create a newspaper just like my father did, and it's now, the, and it has been, the largest black newspaper in the state of Wisconsin. It's called the Milwaukee Community Journal. So we would sit down at the breakfast table every morning pretty much and talk about the issues and the problems that are happening within our community, but also what can we do to spread the information and help solve them. So we always would talk about these issues. So it really helped to shape who I was as a young black man growing up. And especially once I heard hip-hop groups like Public Enemy or Jungle Brothers or KRS-One as an artist. So those things sort of pushed me along as well. So I've been really blessed to have conscious parents that were extremely woke from day one. So your mom produced a king factory, the opposite of a nigger factory. That, that's my mother literally and father produced the King Factory. I love that phrase because they raised, my mom raised two sons almost by herself because my mother and father got divorced when I was nine years old. And so my father, though, I give him props because he was a black man that even though he and my mother had divorced, he was insistent on teaching me business, teaching me work ethic, and teaching me how this nation and this world that I'm living in was going to do me no favors, that I really had to work for it and make things happen on my own. And he instilled that in me. And then my mother, she instilled everything. I mean, from entrepreneurship to dignity to being sensitive and loving towards another woman, um, she was just uh, an absolute fantastic teacher, you know, not to mention just people in the community that I knew. So, yeah. I've always felt like we need to share. Whatever I get, I've been given it. And when, because I've been given it, then I should give it to somebody else. So I get it and I pass it along. In my song, Tennessee, there's a lyric in the last verse that says, now I see the importance of history, why my people be in the mess that we be. Many journeys of freedom made in vain by brothers on the corner playing ghetto games. I ask you, Lord, why you enlighten me without the enlightenment of all my folks. He said, because I set myself on a quest for truth, and he was there to quench my thirst. And I said, but I am still thirsty. And the Lord allowed me to drink some more. He said, what I am searching for are the answers of everything which is in front of me. The ultimate truth started to get blurry. For some strange reason, it had to be. It was all a dream about Tennessee. And that's that's the last verse of Tennessee, And it's just talking about the struggle of anyone that's woke because you're striving to help pull everybody else up because you see the benefits of being woke. When you're woke, you're able to avoid the traps that are set before you because you see them plain and simple. But when you're not woke, you fall into those traps. So like the Bible says, the blind leading the blind is dangerous. So when you are able to see, you can help someone else, but if everyone's blind, then they all fall into the ditch. And so there is a frustration and an urgency, and it's not that I'm more woke than everybody, because I don't feel that. I learn something from all types of people on a daily basis, but there is a blessing to having the vision and the understanding of who is oppressing us, why they're oppressing us, and their weaknesses so you can overcome their oppression. 
And so there's a frustration when your brothers and sisters around you many times don't see the way you see it, and they're falling, and you're, you're feeling their pain. You're feeling the frustration of losing a brother or sister, and you know they can do better. You know that our destiny as a people is meant to be so much greater. And so it's the frustration of, man, let's, let's all ride this thing together and get to the next level. Okay. <clears throat> Perfect. Now, when we Google the nigger factory, um, a picture of Kanye hugging um, the current president of the United States. Tell us why does that picture resonate with your documentary, The Nigger Factory? You know, that picture to me signifies an era in time where a black man who has extreme power to reach so many people, who has probably the peak of his power and influence at the palm of his hands, and yet he's misguided to such an extent that he believes in, has associated himself with, and is in cahoots with someone who literally hates and is disgusted by our people in the role that we are meant to play in this world. And that, that to me is the perfect symbolism or picture that represents what many of us are playing into, which is corporations, organizations, and a philosophy that exists out here that is thoroughly striving to undercut us as a people around this entire planet and yet many of our own people not only love those corporations and organizations, but they support them and promote them and help them to gain more and more power. Thus, the more power they have, the more they keep us down. And so that, that's why I felt like that picture of Kanye and the current president was such a great symbolism of the unfortunate reality of this nigga factory that exists. To be honest, the the nigga factory was created Mm -hmm. to convert not only people who were in impoverished neighborhoods, but every one of us. It's meant to convert all of us because it does the work for them. So in other words, instead of them having to convince us that our women are useless or of no value, instead of them having to convince us that our men and their lives are of no value and to be snuffed out in an instant, instead of them having to convince us that we are only worth the clothes that's on our back, that we are only as valuable as what is around our wrist or on our teeth or on our wrist, um, our neck, I should say, instead of them having to convince us that, they would rather have people of Kanye's class or any other class do the work for them. And so their goal is to do it on all levels. And to some extent, they have accomplished that goal. Many of us Uh in this country and across the world have been conditioned to believe that our true blackness, the real black person, the real nigga, is the person who is the most 
quote-unquote hood, and I'm not talking about where they live. I'm talking about the way they act, where uh-huh. if, they are more, if they are more gangster, if they are more willing to kill somebody at the drop of a dime, or if they are more willing to sell a drug or what have you to another one of us in the community, if they are willing to do an illegal activity, whether it means stealing or what have you, that they are the real niggas. They are the, the true black person. And anyone who decides to go another route, if they are very educated or if they're very um, entrepreneurial or if they are doing other things like science or biology or um, um, any other things, that they are less and less black the more that they do that. They are pursuing white dreams or they are more white. They are not black any longer. They are something else. And so they have conditioned us to believe that blackness is synonymous with a gangster or a hood or a thug or something like that. And so that's the conditioning that is being put into our minds. What do you see as far as this nigger factory being perpetuated throughout the world? Throughout the planet, and I get to, I'm so blessed to be able to travel. Like, for instance, to give you an example just mm-hmm. this, this uh, within a month, I've been throughout Belgium, throughout Switzerland, throughout Germany, France, the UK, um, so on and so forth. And when I travel throughout the world, people will come up to me, white people, Asian people in Japan, and they say, yo, what's up, my nigga? And they don't know that that is a derogatory term because all of the music that they enjoy from the United States uses these terms. And because they speak another language and they're from a totally different culture, they don't know the nuances that we may know here in the States where, well, we can use that term, but no one else can. Or that term is generally a term of endearment or things of this nature. All they know is that, it's consistently being used. Or they may call our woman, a black woman, a bitch or a hoe or a sot. These things are commonplace for them because it's what they've been taught. And the only media that they are exposed to about us, because many of them, you have to know, many people around the world have never met a black person in person. They've only seen us via the media. So if it's in the news, because of the racist bias in the news, usually we are depicted as criminals. If it's one of our reality TV shows, which unfortunately is one of the most popular mediums that we're on, then it shows us as very fickle, ready to fight, ready to go down in just a heartbeat, always arguing loud, boisterous, but never the opposite or never any balance that shows who we are as full human beings. Rarely will it show black love. Most of the time it just shows black sex and black lust. Most of the time it shows gross materialism where all we're talking about is money, cash, hoes, so on and so forth. So these are the things that they feel we are all about. Well, how does that affect us? Well, it affects us in little and huge and big ways, not just small ways. It affects us when it comes to how they're going to deal with us in business. How, did, how do they view us as a community? 
as a people throughout the entire world, not just black Americans, but Africans and African Americans and all of the rest of us throughout the diaspora, whether the Caribbean or in Brazil and so on and so forth, they look at us as not real players in the true game of this world economy and the world life that other nations are always participating in. They don't feel like we're part of that because we're just consumers. We're just on the lower levels of thought and intelligence and um, intellectual conversation. And that's the sad part. We know that we are so much bigger than that. But it does play a huge role in how people view us. And I see that on a daily basis when I travel. Then you said it's so important for us to promote Mm -hmm. our own. Mm -hmm. And so every opportunity we get to tell stories of glory and dignity about who we are and honesty about who we are, it's a good thing. But the other thing is we have to start to become aware of what the nigger factory is doing to us and how it's playing an effect on other races because many of the programs that are depicting us as negative, as sellouts, as ignorant, are unfortunately brought to the networks by us. And so we have to start to become aware of how these images play a huge role in demeaning our entire community and all the positive that we're striving to do, it plays a huge role in demeaning that positivity. It plays a huge role in the elections. It plays a huge role in police officers and how they view us. Police officers, white police officers, and black police officers for that matter, are all inundated with this same media stereotype. And so when they run into us, Their first inclination is thinking about what they've seen on television, what has been conditioned in them for years and years and years. And this is generational. This isn't just our generation. We're the ones facing it now, but this has been going on for 400 years. So we must start to become active participants in changing that narrative. And so our creatives, our activists, need to start standing up against it. And it's a very high tide to stand up against because even right now, many of us value a hot song or a hot trend more than we value our actual advancement as a people. So if an artist comes out and it's a good song, we're going to support it even if it solely talks about or primarily talks about our own destruction, even if it talks about dissing our black women, even if it talks about killing our black men, we're still going to support it by and large because we are not conscious enough to put our foot down and say, listen, we will not tolerate that. We've got to change the narrative of our music. And that doesn't mean that every artist has to be a conscious artist. It does mean they have to be conscious to a small extent and at least not demean us. They can talk about partying. They can talk about anything that they want to talk about. But instead of demeaning us, at least lift us up or at least don't demean us, you know, one or the other. But we've got to make changes and change those narratives or else we're being destroyed slowly but surely from the inside out. All right. Hello. 
Okay. Um, I think we have on we have a, a caller caller on the line. Um, my co-host, Mr. Garrett Fortner. Um, yes. He's going to talk to you uh, speech about the Pacifics in your in uh, Nigger Factory documentary. Thank you for joining us, uh, sure. Garrett. Garrett is someone who petitioned um, the FCC because he got tired of listening to the N-word, specifically on Saturday Night Live. So I'll let you take it from here, Garrett. Uh, yes, I basically was uh, upset that there was no outside that Michael Che used the N-word on network television and, like, no one literally said anything about it. So basically what I did, I filed a complaint with the FCC uh, against Saturday Night Live for allowing you know, him to use the N-word, and basically he contracted in his contract to use the word four more, three more times in the coming year. And uh, like I said, there was no outcry from anyone. Uh, there was no backlash or no brouhaha. But when, but when this lady said she talked about being in blackface and, and, so, and there was all this outcry, but it seems that African Americans will not go against their own if they demean their own. You know, so that's a problem that we have amongst ourselves not to basically stand up against the N-word and it's all its pervasiveness, you know, in this country today. I couldn't agree more. think that what you faced is what I tend to face as well, and I applaud your, you know, actions. I think it's, it's beautiful. Like right now I have a group of brothers that are fighting to help us all boycott stores like Sears and so on and so forth because they buy advertising on various radio stations that consistently play songs that have the N-word in it, that have derogatory references to our women. So I I applaud that. Any rapper who offends any other race only with their own. You see what I'm saying? If if Jay-Z was using the K-word, if Jay-Z was using the K-word, they must, can't associate with it, but he's using the N-word, which offends millions of African-Americans. But somehow, they seem to think because he's African-American, he gets a pass on bigotry. There's no passes on bigotry whatsoever. And I've contacted Samsung, and I've contacted um, uh, uh, Sprint, who also backed an album, and they apologized. I said, well, I need an apology in writing. You know, I mean, I need to be, like, in, a, in the New York Times, and we apologize for sending any African-Americans by backing the album that contains the, the, the N-word. So, I mean, there's been some right. dialogue, but, but there's been no, no action yet. But, you know, I'm on it. Can I speak on this? Yeah. I believe that the reason they have not apologized is because they are well aware that the majority of our people are not on the same page as you and I and so many millions of others that agree with us. They know that they're able to get away with it. And unfortunately, many of them will use black people to make sure that their campaign is, quote, unquote, acceptable to the black audience, even though it actually does continue to demean our own people. They will get somebody black who is not woke and will have them, you know, intercede to make sure that they're not going against the will of the general. Exactly. They will not be penalized. And let me say this. I remember just recently a television show, I forget the name of it, had a plot that made Indian people from India look like terrorists. 
and the Indian people throughout the nation started to boycott that show, and they had to change the entire plot of that show because the oh, Indian my, people. Yeah, and that's the way you do it. But let me say this, let me give it a What you're doing right now is, is, is to be commended because people like myself don't have an outlet. They're not going to invite me on any TV show to, to denounce inward sympathizers, inward pro-users, inward advocators. They're not going to have me on. But what you're doing is it gives, gives people like myself a voice Exactly. Okay. All right. Speech, um, I'm looking at your video while you guys are talking. You have an excerpt of Donald Glover. Tell the audience about that clip. Well, that's one of the last clips of my episode one of The Nigger Factor. And obviously, This Is America is meant to be a message song about the, the the gross violence and the consistent violence and chaos of the police against us in America and so on and so forth. For me, I personally had an issue with the imagery of a black man shooting in the head another black man and literally blowing his brains out in the most graphic ways that to me follows the same narrative. Now I I understand that his song was meant to to spread a message in a sort of irony type of way. But that scene, I to this day I can't watch that scene because I don't like the gratuitous violence of it. So for me that scene is still a visual representation of the lack of respect that we have for the sacredity of life in a lot of these visuals, not us as a literal people, but the imagery that we are presented with, it's, 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 a, it's a total lack of respect for, for who we are. The Nigger Factory actually documents a 400-year, even prior to the era of Jim Crow, a 400-year campaign to defile and demean the image of black people worldwide so that it could justify the enslavement and the dehumanization of black people as they were enslaved. During that early era of the Americas, the doctrine of all men are created equal was in 100% juxtaposition of the fact that there were slaves who were men and women who were not equal. And so they had to come up with a justification that made slavery all right. And so they used numerous means, religion, they used marketing, they used demeaning images through advertising, through stories, and in, and in, and in, and in the most important figures in American history, whether it be Thomas Jefferson, whether it be um, Abraham Lincoln, whether it be the scientists of the age, whether it be those that were the founding fathers of this country and in other European countries as well, they use this imagery and this entire philosophy that the white race was superior to the black race and the black race was not even a human race at all, but instead animals, less than human, not worthy of equality, not worthy of being treated with respect and dignity like all other humans were. So 
these things were perpetuated very early on, even before the Jim Crow and before our quote-unquote freedom um, from slavery. And so these things were early on. And what's funny is that they knew it was a lie from the very beginning. They only just they, – they were trading with us. We had been to America before they had been to America. We had been trading with them with various precious metals, jewels, and so on and so forth for hundreds of years. We had traveled the world for hundreds of years. They've known about us for many, many years. We've gotten them out of darkness in earlier eras of time. So they knew that we weren't subhuman, but this was a purposeful agenda in order to justify this era that they were presently in in that time of slavery. Hey, let me just... um... Can I ask you a question? Uh, I mean, I want I want to yeah. uh, ask. Uh, okay, I mean, you know, I mean, what as a as a as a people, how do we start to basically turn this whole thing around? What are the things, some of the things you might suggest to us as a people? That, you know, we got to really get a get a grip on this, especially like you know the, the, the future generation and what we could do now, this current generation. I mean, what are some of the solutions you would recommend? Say, you know what, this is what we can do to combat the pervasiveness of the M-word and the stereotype and all that stuff. Well, what, what would you recommend? To me, I believe when you shed light on any situation, by nature that's less darkness. There's less ignorance. There's less blindness when you shed light. So for me, and to answer the question very honestly, I don't know what to do, brother. What I, what I hope to do is to shed light because if there's no light, then we can't see correctly. Many of our people only look towards what's happening to them right now and not how it affects even them later in their life, much less how it's going to affect future generations. We have been trained to look at our lives as not valuable. We have also been trained to not prepare the further generations. We have been conditioned to stop doing that. We've, that was inherent in us, but we've been conditioned to do that less and less. So we have been conditioned to blow money. We've been conditioned to get what we can now. You only live once type of thing. When in truth, we live for eternity through the ancestors and through the people that come after us. So we have to shed light on the truth of what is being done to us and hope that our people can wake up. Uh, and more and more of us, I should say, of our people can wake up. That's all I know to do. If someone else well, let has me a just better say solution, this. I play the support role. I, I say this to both of you. Um, you know, you mentioned the Bible earlier, speech. All we need is a mustard seed. All we need is a ray of hope, of light. You don't need a million people to make change. You need one person. And I think... As long as these individuals like yourself keep pushing, keep being passionate, that we will make progress, and we are making progress. We may not see it. We may not live to see as much as we want. But I believe what you're doing out of um, faith and hope is very, very impactful, and um, I really, really um, do appreciate what the two of you have been doing um, thus far. But I want to jump back on what you were saying as far as the dehumanization of African Americans um, throughout the world for centuries. And you said that they knew that we 
were in this country and we were explorers and so forth and, you know, we built civilizations, but yet they tried to perpetuate these stereotypes. Now, it just came to my attention that Queen Charlotte had a state or a, a town, Charlotte, North Carolina, named after her because she was of African ancestry. Are you familiar with Queen Charlotte? I've heard of it, but no, I'm not very familiar with it. Okay. And I'm just now getting, you know, deeply diving into this research. And I've interviewed two people, one from England, a professor from England, and a writer from America. And she's studied Queen Charlotte. Queen Charlotte was the last American queen. When they found out, the slavers found out that they were being ruled by Africans, they decided to go for their independence and to start a slave system like no other in this world. So if you can, including your one of your episodes, the history of Queen Charlotte in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Meghan Markle is extremely powerful. Everything that we've been taught in school about why this country started over a tea, a tea party fight, it's not true. It started because Queen Charlotte, when she became the queen, she fought for the, the, the abolishment of slavery. And in doing so, she took, she had portraits of herself made, and she sent them to all the colonies to give hope to the Africans who were still enslaved. So I would love for you to do the research and to include um, her story. One of the experts, her name is Stephanie Myers. She wrote the book, She Like Your Mom. She has a publishing company, her own publishing company. She published her own book. She's been in the business for several years. So I hope that um, I could be of some assistance, be on board with your episodes. I love what you're doing, and um, I just wanted to share that with you before I have you come back and make your response to that comment. Thank you. I will definitely research that, and I would love to have consistent help, and I appreciate your support because as we do – more episodes, we want that collaboration. Perfect. Okay, so we're winding down, Mr. Faulkner. We're going to let speech um, go, but before he goes, do you have any comments, questions before he closes out? I I, uh, I basically, I mean, I like what he's doing. I'm glad he's getting the word out. I'm glad that it's him uh, giving his reputation and his history, his music and who he is. So it's definitely coming from a good, positive place, and I'm on board too. I, you know, I share it with everybody that I know, and uh, I mean, any support you need from me, please pass on my information to him. Uh, I'll be down and supported here in Brooklyn. Uh, we got a lot of conscious folks here in Brooklyn, so anything I can do, please let me know. I'll be more than happy to lend a hand. So yeah. Well, I definitely right. appreciate that. Um, I have you know, a few things that I want to make sure to share with you right quick, if you don't mind. And that is, we just released a new album. 
It's called Craft and Optics. It's on our website, ArrestedDevelopmentMusic.com. And then I just released a documentary called 16 Bars, where I went into a jail in Richmond, Virginia for 10 days and started writing music with the inmates in that jail. And it's a very powerful documentary about their lives and about the cycles of drug addiction, mental disorders, and so on and so forth that plagued the particular men that I worked with. And I think it's a very telling and great documentary about some of the problems that we face and how to overcome them. And then, of course, The End Factory, which is on my YouTube channel, and people can get there um, by going to my website, brotherspeech.com, and peep out The End Factory. And um, I definitely appreciate your love and Anything I can do to support you all, just let me know. I'm here for you. All right. Thank you, buddy. Okay, you. that interview has been with Mr. Speech from Wrestling Development. He's been on our show a few times. He's always shown us love, and we have to support Speech um, in every way that we can. Go out and purchase his albums, his, his CDs, his watches, documentaries. Share, 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 like, follow, and let's stay in contact. Thank you so much, Speech. Thank you. Power, y'all. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye, peace.